from Luminary Media. This is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I have a long and sordid history with allergies. So unfortunately, my voice sounds a bit whack today. That is a medical term, but I hope it will not distract from the brilliance that is Richie Jackson. He has a new book out called Gay Like Me. It's an expanded letter to his son who is also gay and has a drastically different experience for both better and worse. You know, these generational differences in the community are something that I think a lot about. And so I'm really excited to sit down and dive into all of this with Richie. Let's hear it. I want to start at the beginning of the book uh, because I was really surprised by just the first line. You wrote that you always dreamed of being a father, that it was a singular drive of your life. That is a really uncommon thing, I think, to hear from a gay man, let alone just a man in general. I could never imagine anything more vital to do than to raise a child. And also very early, I thought I would be good at it. And I don't have a lot of things I think I'd be good at, but I just always thought I would be good at being a parent. And as I grew up, as I evaluated things in my life, I always came back to parenting is the most important thing I could do. It felt the most vital and and I felt the most alive. And it's also what I love most. I crave responsibility and there's not a moment of parenting that doesn't have that. And I just never wanted anything as much. I never dreamed about money. I never dreamed about fame. I didn't care about getting a lot of attention. I really only ever wanted to be love someone and be a parent. So that surprises me to hear you say that because also the other part that surprised me about that line, about that being your singular focus, was it surprised me because you have had a very successful career. To me, it feels rather haphazard. I had two goals, and I will say proudly, I've achieved the two goals I did have. I wanted to be a father, and I wanted to love someone. Those are the two things I set out to do. Everything else in my life has felt rather haphazard. How did I end up here? All the good, the bad, the secret that I've done. I always thought, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And how did I find myself here? This makes no sense. I'll just do this. Until now, until the opportunity to write this book, to be able to uh, be the person who wrote the book that I needed when I was little, that so many of us needed, that my son needs, that our parents need, that our straight friends have to read to understand us. Now my life makes sense in a way it never has before. I really admire that just because I am so career-focused myself. And it's only in the last few years that I've started to think like, oh, I can also spend time and energy on my relationships. Right. I always did it the opposite because I always think you can't live in a house without a foundation. So to me, I built my personal life, focused on it, always put it first. And so I had that foundation. So nothing else outside of it mattered as much. So when my career was not going well or things were stressful or I was stagnant, it was hard, but it wasn't as hard as it would have been had I had nothing at home. The matter at hand is always at home. And then the rest of it, I sort of built on top of that. 
that's so interesting. So in, in the book, one of the things that stood out to me was you wrote, everything good that has happened to me is because I am gay. Everything I think, believe, crave, create, and conquer comes from being gay. When did you start to feel like that? I, I felt like that very early. I mean, when I was in the third grade, I figured out I was gay. It made me feel special and unique. And I was not like, I was very bad at math and I couldn't read and I really struggled with reading. But what I had special about me that was different than every other person in my class is that I knew I was gay and that made me feel special. I don't want to call you old, but like for that time period, you could call me old. No, I'm 54 (laughs) years old. I feel old. Okay. Um, I'll let you say it. But for that time period, there were not a lot of messages telling you, hey, this, this thing called being gay is good. No, but I had no messages at home telling me it was bad. I grew up with parents who never said a negative word about anybody. And they always valued what I wanted to do and what I had to say. So when you grow up in a home like that, you don't think anything you feel is wrong. I was always brought up to believe that there was value in every person. It wasn't until my fourth grade uh, gym teacher called me a faggot that I thought, oh, he thinks it's wrong and he's latching that on me. But I didn't feel that inside. Wow. I feel like to being called a faggot that young... It's like, oh, I don't even know what that word means. I just know it's bad. I, I, right. And I know, and when all, so my fourth grade gym teacher, I had joined chorus and all the other boys joined band. And so when the gym teacher heard what I had done, he told all the other boys to jump on the faggot. And they did. So not only did I know that he thought it was bad, they also thought that there was something wrong with, you know, that they understood what that word meant in a way I didn't. And, and you saying that everything good that has happened to you comes from being gay, I think is a really radical view of queerness. Right. Um, just because for so long it's, it, well, let, let's say in my own journey, I've been out. How old are you? I'm 30. I've been out for 10 years. And for the first seven this was something that I could live with. It was something that I was, and it wasn't good or bad. It just was what it was. And only in, in the last like three years um, have I really started to like love it. But you do a, this podcast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you have made it central to your life. And I think that that was subconsciously me doing it to like find value right. in queerness. For me, we're only 4.5% of the population, right? That is not... Our generation, at least. Right. I mean, people think that will change. Yeah. But now it's 4.5%. And I think, well, that's not a defect. That's not worthless. That's chosen. We get to look at the world from a different point of view. We get to see things differently. And what a blessing. So I've always felt like everything I feel the way I look at things, the way I care about things, all comes out of this specialness, this otherness, this uniqueness. And out of that well has come my relationship, my parenting. Everything that has happened to me that's good is because I'm gay. Wow. So you write that in the book. The book is a letter to your son who is also gay. That's good parenting, right? (laughs) I mean, you did say it was your greatest wish to have a gay son. It was. I... 
you know, people say to me, would you have been disappointed if he wasn't gay? And he thinks I would have been disappointed. <laughs> but the real disappointment would have been if I wanted him to be nothing like me. How could I parent with any self-esteem if every day I prayed, please don't be like me, please don't be like me. Uh, it's been the blessing of my life. I wanted that for him. And so if everything good in your mind has come from being gay for you. How does he view being gay? Would he agree with that statement? He would not. <laughs> and that's the tension in the book, and that's why the book uh, was urgent for me to write. He came out to my husband and I when, when he was 15, and I was elated. And he said, Daddy, being gay is not a big deal. My generation doesn't think it's a big deal. And I thought, oh no, I, I have to tell him what it means to be a gay man. It's a really big deal. And then Donald Trump and Mike Pence were elected just as our son is leaving our home to be an adult out in the world. Now I had to warn him how to be uh, a gay man in America, what it takes to be a gay man in America. And so we can read all that in the book about like the warning, right. but in person, where, where did you start with him? I started with, look, you have an opportunity you have been chosen to be different than everyone else. Otherness is, I call it in the book, a leg up to extraordinary. You have this chance. And if you invest in it and rely on it and have faith in it, you can have this extraordinary life. If you grow up to be one of those gay men who say, gay doesn't define me, I just happen to be gay, and treat it as matter of fact... I believe that he would be breaking his own heart and diminishing the gift that it is, not taking advantage of it, you know, not not seeing it for what it what it's worth. You know, part of me is like baffled to have like the, for the the gay experience have a young gay person having gay parents right. in the house. I know. Could you imagine? Yeah, I I know. I, I actually can't. I find it like unfathomable. Right. And well, we're all born into uh, families where minorities in our own families. He wasn't. He has an experience different than most of us. And for that reason, you write about a really interesting and nuanced worry that I think only a queer parent could have. And that is that you raised your son in New York City where it's generally safe and you shielded him from things. And so now you worry that he hasn't built up defenses, that right. he's not alert as he should be right. as a gay person. It, it, you know, as I was thinking about him leaving our home, I thought, oh, wait a minute, he has no gay guard. We all have a gay guard. As you know, you are constantly on alert. There's a vigilance to being gay, you, and it's exhausting. You have to always be aware of who's around you, where you are, what you're saying, who's hearing you. I don't kiss my husband goodbye or hold his hand unless I believe the coast is clear enough to do that. When we were married in 2012, legally married in the state of New York, two blocks from our home, a gay man was called, you know, called uh, gay slurs and then shot to death. We're legal, we're not safe. So I had to teach my son how to have a gay guard, to build up his gay guard, to understand that coming out isn't only just once, but you're going to have to come out every day, multiple times a day. And this guard will let you know when it is safe to come out and when it's not. And I mean, that is 
I said unfathomable before. It's unfathomable to me that a gay person's learning that um, in their house and like as a theoretical thing. Right. Like the real world is not teaching him. That's how lucky I feel to be able to give him these lessons because I know that I didn't get them when I was growing up and I had to learn them by trial, error, and a lot of tribulation. I made a lot of mistakes. I have a lot of scars to show for the mistakes I made. I'm trying to have it be where he doesn't make the same mistakes I made. There's a tradition in in the Jewish religion when someone dies, you cut up their shoes so nobody can walk in them. That's what my book is for him, to say, here's what I did, here's what happened to me. Don't walk in my shoes in the same way. I mean, just one example of like that guard we have up. The book is called Gay Like Me. And I was reading it in public and I was so aware right. of holding this like text. I wanted the the title to be Gay Like Me because it's a very, you know, strong message to say, here's here's the path I took, and here's the path that my generation took. And I know that my son thinks things are better. But it's just the veneer. It's, you know, there is underneath all the rainbows is a war being waged on us. And, you know, I wanted to make sure he was aware of that. And to that, you write that in terms of fighting for rights and acceptance, it's going to be harder for him and his generation. I absolutely believe that I came to New York in 1983 as a 17-year-old. I believe it's going to be harder for him and his generation than it was for us, partly because we were invisible and fighting for visibility, fighting for representation. There were very few laws protecting us. There were no out, you know, elected officials, no out people on TV, no out movie stars, no out athletes. Our adversaries, their worst nightmare was us getting our rights. Well, then we achieved a lot. And everything we thought that was impossible to us was their worst nightmare. And when that White House in 2015, the day the marriage equality decision was handed down by the Supreme Court, when the White House lit up in rainbow, our adversaries thought that was their house alone. And they were, a straight lash has come at, at us ever since. And they're going to try to erase our rights, which they're doing, and they're going to fight really hard that we don't get them back. So I do believe it's harder for our, my son's generation. And so for you moving to New York City in 83, it was the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. Right at the beginning, yeah. How soon into moving here did you um, become aware of it? My very first acts as a gay man was to march in uh, rallies about, you know, trying to get the government to act. And Uh, For me, my coming out has never felt really like an exploration of identity or a culmination of any sort of evolution. It felt political. My friends and I felt we had to come out to stand up, to be counted, to show the government just how many of us there were. And that was my very first uh, semester at NYU. Being political, being angry, and being gay are all wrapped up together for me. Your son has had a different experience growing up in New York City, obviously, but for him, is it in no ways political? Uh, I think it's political by not in the same way. People can feel like they're protesting and resisting 
just on their phones. Oh. So, or slapping a rainbow on a tweet or a post. Oh, and hitting retweet is different than taking in the streets. Than going to the streets. Right. That's why we have to change the way we talk about being LGBTQ. We have to change it so that we can empower our young people and make them feel like coming out and joining in in a much more empowered way. And that is that they've been chosen for something magical. And that goes back to you calling it a blessing. Um, it also goes back to that sentence that I'm harping on, which is that everything good in your life has come from it. And I think I'm so compelled by it because it's such a rational sentence. It's not, you know, like glitter in uh, <laughs> drag queens and like, hey, let's celebrate it. It's just like you rationally saying you've had a great life and it's legitimately um, for this one big reason. I never wanted to be straight. I never wanted to be like straight people. I've never wanted to be anybody other than who I was. And I think not diminishing it, but hitting the gas on it is why I can say it's been the blessing of my life, why I can say everything good has come from it. My husband uh, would not love me had I scrubbed it off. I wouldn't be, you know, my children's parent if I had scrubbed it off. I remember it was my last year in college and someone said to me, if you could make the choice to be gay, would you? And without hesitation, I said, no. And now it's like, I do this podcast, as you said, I volunteer the Trevor Project. Yeah, yeah. I live in a gay area. Like all those things had to combine for me to be like, oh, I actually do love this part of me. Not only combined, but you had to make all these things central to your life. The thing that this part of you be has become central, and now it you see it as the blessing that it is. It's when you don't put it in a corner that you can take full advantage of it. So for me, growing up, um, being gay was defined by AIDS. Yes. Um, you grew up and were a teenager before the AIDS era. I was, uh, yeah, I was 17 when I, in the 83. So in 81, I was in high school. So what, what was the like stereotype or feeling around being gay? The stereotype before 81 is just that it was sissies that, you know, lonely men and you would have this lonely life. I remember if I had caught any movie about gay people on TV, they were either suicidal or homicidal. Oh, and then in your own life, that tracks to your first sexual experience. You know, my first sexual experiences were all, all of the, the three men's gay shame came out at me after sex. You know, when I was in high school and I was 16, I was sort of, dating, I thought, dating this guy from college. And one day after having sex, before we got off the bed, we had not even stood up yet. He broke up with me and he said, we shouldn't be doing this. It made uh, having sex for me very difficult for my entire life because the next time was in college and I met someone I actually liked. He said to me, I'm straight. And then leaned in and kissed me and then we had sex and we had sex for two weeks and then he broke up with me and said he was straight and then the third guy i had sex with right after we had sex he hit me he punched me and he said what did you just do and i didn't realize that he was so angry at having just enjoyed sex with a man 
So what I say in my book to my son and what I've said to my son is, especially in college, when you're having sex with young men, you don't know where in their process they are. They may be in the closet. They may be self-loathing. They may be stigmatized by their religion, bullied in their childhood. You have no idea. It's a tightrope. You have to be vulnerable enough to be intimate, but you have to protect yourself not to take on any of their baggage and shame. And I said to him, you have to take care with them because they are just young people yearning to be free. And if, if you can't be uh, callous when you're having sex with someone your age because you don't know what's happening for them inside. That is the most realistic sex talk I've ever heard. Uh, like gay or straight. Right. I mean, that, you know, we have talked a lot uh, about actually the acts of sex yeah. and the mechanics of it and how to protect himself with uh, condoms and prep. We did that so often that I know that he's got it. But really what I want him to understand is what it is to be with another person. I wasn't taught this, of course. How could I have been? I didn't know it. So my first sexual experiences were bruising and I still have the scars from it. And I wanted to protect him from that. I, I was able to be able to share that. And, and with the like just mechanics of sex, that is something that the vast majority of people I know, including myself, found out through either trial and error or talking to friends. Right. Um, asking questions of friends. And, you know, people who are you know, also 20 years old don't have the best answers. Right, right. And so for him, you to have that talk with him, I find really just fascinating. Well, the other thing is I, what I get to do as a parent, which a friend of his might not do, I don't have to come off as knowing everything or being good at everything. I get to tell him sometimes it's really uh, weird and sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it hurts and sometimes you're it's not going to be good. And here's what you have to look out for. I was able to say all this and not come off as a big, like a friend who might be boasting. Yeah. How receptive is he to this kind of um, like specific talk? He was, he was much more receptive than uh, as it got closer to him moving out. And he was much more receptive to it than the times I said, okay, now we have to go and like buy sheets for your dorm room and we have to set up a checking account. And we have to, like he ignored me for months about getting ready for college. But when we had like, it was a week before he was going to college and my husband was uh, at a business trip. So the two of us were alone. And I said to him at dinner, is there anything you want to ask me about sex? Is there anything we didn't talk about? And we had a very long talk. And I said to him, if there's ever a moment that you don't understand something, that you're scared, that you're confused, call me, text me about anything. And I really actually believed that he would after we had that talk. And not only are you transferring information to him, but you're also modeling just communication. Right. He'll be less scared to talk to a partner about all these things. I hope so. And, I, you know, and we try to be sex positive. You know, you do want, there are things that I've had my troubles. Certainly my beginning was very difficult, but I, we wanted to be a sex positive household. We wanted him to feel that that is a place of pleasure for him. Could be. 
And in the book, you make the point that you also cultivated that at home because he didn't have the options that straight kids have right. to like kids on a park bench. Right. So uh, he's told me that I have to get over this, that I'm still angry at his therapist uh, because when he had his first boyfriend, uh, his therapist said to me, I'm going to give you the same advice I give parents of straight kids. Don't let your son be in his bedroom with his boyfriend with the door closed. And I said to her, it's not the same for my son as uh, with his boyfriend as it is for straight teenagers. They can't go outside and kiss on a park bench. They could be beaten up or worse. So the safest place, the best place for them to experiment is in his bedroom, in my home. That's an important point for parents of LGBTQ kids. As uncomfortable as you may feel letting them have that freedom in your house, you are actually keeping them safe by letting them do it. Can I ask you a question about um, traditionally queer spaces like gay bars or, um, you know, Fire Island? These are gay um, spaces where... Um, like sex is in the air. Yes. And they're, they're lust-filled. And I wonder if you, what it's like to go to these places with your son. I stopped going to Fire Island when he was born. So I've never been to any of those places with him. I have said to him, look, you can have as much sex as you want with as many people as you want. And I want you to have the experiences, but you have to be safe. My worry more about those places is the alcohol and drugs not the sex. Have you been to a gay bar with him? I have not. I didn't know if it was uncomfortable. He's just not like, that kind of, you oh, know, I, I would be happy to, but yeah. he's, you know, I don't know. Do they still have gay bars? They're not as, uh, <laughs> they're not as important as they were when I was growing up. There's they're more, important to me. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm look, I, with th I, I think being in gay space, uh, as you call them queer, that's not a word I use, but in spaces where we are the majority, is really important. I do not believe that uh, we should only live in the straight world. You said you don't use the the Q word. That I you don't. Used. I, I'm I am challenged by it. And um, obviously, it's like for the reasons that everyone knows, it's a derogatory yes. word that has been reclaimed. Um, do, even for people who like self-identify as that, is that like a hard word for you to use? No. And uh, uh, I have a lot to learn from my son, and he taught me that queer is positive now. And he explained to me what it means. Like I'm getting better, uh, understanding it. I just had been called it so much growing up and it had been hurled at me so many times in a violent and angry way that I still trip up about it. You know, my son taught me like it's a more expansive word than the, than saying gay. Um, it means more, of us, more of, of our wide community. So I'm getting better at yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to uh, the, the AIDS crisis for a second, just because I don't know if this is a naive question, but I just wonder how um, often do you still think about that time? Every day. And I, I write about it in the book because I so much of it I didn't share with my son because I didn't want to scare him. And I didn't know when the right time to tell your child about the plague you lived through. I still hold on to this rage that I have. I think about it every day. I think about it when I have sex with my husband. I've been together 17 years. That's not a time that I don't think about death during sex. Wow. 
And I, I ask that because when I read about the numbers of men who died, um, men my age range, you yes. know, people who look just like me. Um, when I hear someone like Cleve Jones say that his entire friend group every year just kept dying out. Right. Um, it's like the concept of psychic numbing or like these numbers um, my brain can't process. Right. And so it, I like go about my day. And so I just, I'm always like seeking out how to, how do we frame what happened in the AIDS crisis to a way that like really hits us and like the scale that right. it requires? I know. I mean, my my parents uh, are, my dad's 93, my mom's 86, and they go to doctor's appointments and funerals. My friends were doing that in their 20s. Before I was 30, I had 20 friends who had died. When I was 22, I went to a funeral every weekend that entire year. 22? 22 years old. And people would just disappear. Um, there's so much in the book about these generational differences, as yes. we've been talking about. Right. Um, the book is about the differences between you and your son. But I was, you know, thinking about my differences, which your experience. And last year, I had a really serious relationship with a guy who was HIV positive, and he was undetectable, so he couldn't transmit it. I was on prep, and I felt so unbelievably guilty because it was the biggest non-issue. Right. Guilty I, for my generation? I felt guilty that it didn't create problems. Right. That it wasn't even a second thought to like date this HIV positive person when 20 years ago... That's very Jewish of you. But, <laughs> is it? I think so. But I thought about it a lot because we talked about it a lot, but it wasn't something that gave me pause. Yeah, no, that. but that's that's the beauty of where we are now and that you're the realization of the dream we had. You know, I remember uh, I had a relationship with someone who was positive right before AZT came out and, and then he started taking AZT. We were dating, kind of having a relationship, but then we weren't, but we were still friends. And he called me one day and he said, will you promise to be there when I die? And I did. I was uh, 24, I think. Um, and I promised him I would be, you know, he lived long enough to see the progress. And now he, you know, he's still alive and healthy. Wow. But I think your having that experience is uh, what we all hoped would happen. For me, I wouldn't know how to be a gay man, not knowing someone who died of AIDS. I just wouldn't know how to be that person. And, and not just someone, but like many, 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 people. many, yes. Can I ask, um, during that time when you were growing up, did um, gay men specifically um, self-identify in like the tops and bottoms category like they do? You know, I'm glad you asked that because I, I, I actually asked a friend that the other day. I said, is this whole top-bottom verse thing new? And uh, he said, no. Uh, there was always tops and bottoms. There used to be, um, I forgot what he called it, but there was really bottoms. There was like a derogatory, like there were many terms for it, but there were tops and bottoms. That's interesting. Yeah. Was there this obsession with masculinity? Yeah. So there was the clones, right? Uh, back when I was uh, a young gay, uh, there were the Marlboro Mans, the jeans and um, the mustaches and the boots and this, this you know, this real masculine um, persona. And I always think about when I was at NYU, I would pass the Christopher Street gym and the windows were open and these guys were working out. And I always thought, 
these gay men were trying to become the guys in high school who beat them up. That's fascinating. Yeah. I only know that term, Marlboro Man, from Larry Kramer's writing. Right. Yeah. And, but, you know, there have always been clones. I'm sure there are, there are probably, if you go on Instagram and you look at all these naked guys with 12 abs and endless leisure time, that might be the gay ideal now. Back then, when I was growing up, it was these Marlboro Men. Oh, when you say clones, are you saying like the friend groups where like the four of them look identical? Well, like the, here it was more than just friend groups. It was actually this gay clone ideal of, of, you know, yeah. That's interesting. I I mentioned Larry Kramer. He, you wrote, was at your wedding in 2012. He was. Um, You know where I'm going with this. It was an illustrious group. Yes, I do. Yeah. And I have to bring it up just because I think it's going to be making a lot of headlines. But Larry Kramer was there. Harvey Firestein was there, who's been a big part of your life. Yes. Um, And the other guests were Donald and Melania Trump and Jared and Ivanka Kushner. Is that surreal for you now? (laughs) It is. It is. uh, Sometimes I turn to my husband, I say, I cannot believe. And, you know, I always call it our wedding, but whenever I say Donald Trump was there, I make sure to say it's a gay wedding, just so his base knows he was at a gay wedding. Was he a part of your life back then? Uh, He's a good friend of my father-in-law's. So I saw him periodically. He was at our wedding. He He wrote us a beautiful note afterwards, how beautiful he thought our wedding was, possibly more beautiful than his he wrote. It's the strangest thing to have this person who um, used homophobia and Islamophobia and sex, you know, all these things, all this hate to rise to be president of the United States. I do think, though, if anybody who's other saw him come down that escalator and say what he said about Mexican people, they had to know he's coming for us, too. Our wedding was magical. I don't want to spend time thinking about changing any part of it. So I don't, but it's a strange thing. And we've spent a lot of time talking about sex in this interview, um, necessarily, I believe. But I also want to be clear that a big portion of the book is your love story with your husband, Jordan Roth. Right. And I think that is such a special thing to share with one's child. Right. Well, I knew I wanted to love someone. I didn't quite understand how you do it and how you do it right. Because I think we get a lot of strange advice. One of the things I always hear people say is, you have to love yourself before you love someone else. And I was like, I don't have time to wait for that. <laughs> and I actually don't think it's true because I have been healed by Jordan's love. If I had waited till I loved myself enough to think I can love someone else, I would not be the person I am today. I am way healthier because of Jordan. And I say to my son, and I say in the book, you can't have a general way to love someone. You can't be like, this is the way I am in relationships. That I'm, This is relationship, Richie, and this is single, Richie. I think what you do is you have to love the person the way they need to be loved. And if you do that, and they do it to you, you will help heal each other. You will see that relationship sustain itself. Um, I think that's an amazing place to leave it at. Great. I enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Thanks. Thank you. All right. That was Richie Jackson. And his new book is called Gay Like Me. It's available right now. We will be back next week with some never before heard stories from a previous guest in the podcast. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, if you've not yet, hit subscribe, please, and spread the word about the podcast. It is very much appreciated. 
LGBT Q&A is brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. We're produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Kate Mishkin, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.